Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. For Republicans, the end of Roe v. Wade has gone from a cause for celebration to something they'd rather not talk about. Since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision in June 2022, the GOP has repeatedly paid a price electorally. Voters shot down anti-abortion measures in red states like Kansas, Kentucky, Ohio, and Montana. And in the 2022 midterms, the Dobbs decision clearly contributed to the party's lackluster results. Now on the presidential primary campaign trail, Republicans have been in disarray. Early in his campaign, Senator Tim Scott couldn't figure out what he believed on the issue. Donald Trump has belittled Ron DeSantis's six-week ban in Florida. And then there's the general dodginess of Nikki Haley, who claims to be, quote, unapologetically pro-life, but also thinks the right abortion policy is to, quote, find consensus. The chaos has been dispiriting to the anti-abortion activists who helped engineer the Dobbs decision in the first place. And now they think they have a new political strategy to get Republicans out of their defensive crouch and to start winning again on this issue. So it is political malpractice to fail to defend and fail to go on offense in a situation like that. The woman leading this effort is Marjorie Dannenfelser, the head of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America one of the most important institutions in the GOP firmament. She's known as the woman who killed Roe. One thing I'm 100% sure of is that no organization in the country comes even close to field operations and winning presidential battlegrounds and Senate battlegrounds and House battlegrounds to what we do. Dannenfelser and her colleagues are plotting, financing, and staffing the Republican Party's counterattack on abortion. We sat down with her at SBA's Virginia headquarters this week, partly because she had some news she wanted to share about how and where anti-abortion activists are making their first big move. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. So there's an argument now that this movement is the dog that caught the car. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to go through the full electoral litany. But the conventional wisdom is that there's been a, just a backlash and the Republican Party is now suffering as a result of this issue. Mm -hmm. And that your side hasn't been very good at defense uh, or offense uh, on this. And um, you're going to help get Joe Biden reelected. So anyway, yeah. I'm sure you, I know you've heard all that before yeah. many times. No, I have. So what's the plan? So let me just ask you to zoom out a little bit yeah. and think of every other major Supreme Court decision in our nation's history and how long it took the law to catch up with the reality of those decisions. And especially in, a, in this case, when the decision is taken, is given back to the people to decide in the public square on a deeply moral question, what, how are you going to work this thing out? Um, then, yeah, there's going to be some political turmoil, especially when it's this of this nature, meaning the uh, abortion movement, the abortion industry has had and, and the NARAL, et cetera, Planned Parenthood holds the whole basket. And they have for 50 years. There is almost nothing that could pass that could be sustained under Roe versus Wade. Certainly no gestational limit that could be sustained. So any loss that they have is a huge loss for them. Any gain that we have, even if it's a modest, you know, 15 weeks or, or 12 weeks, which most people support, is an enormous gain. So they, they, it's like the NRA. It's the, they are the more equivalent to the NRA who every, every chipping away, you know, the NRA sees it. Any, any uh, curtailing of, of gun rights is a huge loss um, because they have those rights. They feel they're being taken away. The edifice has now collapsed. Yeah. Right. And, so, and now it's all thrown to the public square yeah. on the state level and the federal level. You guys, the court said, you yeah. guys 
come to consensus yourself on this on this moral issue because it's not our job to do that for you. It's your job to do that for yourself. Right. And so what happens? And you next? had to know that yeah. that some states are going to move in the direction. Right. You, <laughs> we knew, and we were very supportive. We were pushing, uh, yeah. and every to be as ambitious for life as we possibly could in every yeah. single state, and now on the federal level. Yeah. But what happened, of course, was regardless of how much conversation, regardless of how many strategy sessions leading up to it, um, there was a deer in the headlights in the Republican Party. There's just no question about it. And their position of the Republican Party to be for, a, it used to be 20-week limit, but to be for a 15-week limit to counter and contrast to an unlimited abortion position, the smart position, the consensus, even pro-choice position in many cases, um, they declined to make. They declined to make that case. So you think they just – they were engaged in the, in the debate? Oh, Is I'll go further than yeah. that. Complete political malpractice. You allow the other side to define you as a monster. You say nothing about your own position and you fail to describe their position, which is unlimited abortion, which is a 10, 9, 8% issue in the country. The 15 week limit is a 70%. 12 week is even a 70% issue. And this is like not just, this is not our polls. This is basically polls across the, the gamut. Uh, so it is political malpractice to fail to defend and fail to go on offense in a situation like that. Why is it the position of SBA to support a 15-week limit? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not our ultimate what we want. We all know that. Uh, but here's, what, is it that, what is it that you want? What we want is to be as ambitious for life in every legislature that there is. So there's the national legislature that includes California, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Mexico, uh, asking for a, a heartbeat bill or a life at conception uh, is perhaps important in many ways in terms of maybe education, but it isn't going to happen right now. It's incremental like every other human rights battle that we've won in this country has been. It's like the Missouri Compromise. Does uh, that put you at odds with other... Uh, activists in the in the movement. You know, every other pro life organization has arrived at what they think is ambitious. Obviously, heartbeat bill at six weeks has a lot of exceptions. It has exceptions that are the first six weeks of life, right? So while I would say we're not at odds, most most are are on board with fifteen weeks. But yeah, there's always going to be somebody that disagrees. But I think it is part of this about the the settling of of uh, where. We need to be as a country moments after it's been restored to the public square. And I, and I think one thing I'm a hundred percent sure of is that no organization in the country comes even close to field operations and winning presidential battlegrounds and Senate battlegrounds and House battlegrounds comes nowhere close to what we do. So we are hoping that our. This position will rule the day because what comes along with that position is not just a position. It's winning the election so that you have a mandate for that position. Right. So if Donald Trump is very likely to be the Republican nominee, although a lot of things could happen between now and then, he's he's in court a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He comes to you again this time and says, you know, some of my advisors want me to be for um, a fetal heartbeat bill. Others are saying, um, and I think Trump himself has said this about mm-hmm. DeSantis' mm-hmm. fetal heartbeat bill, but he, uh, that that's a bad idea. He should be for a 15-week prohibition or a 20-week. Um, but let's just say his, his, he's, he's coming to you and saying, what do you think? Should I, should I campaign on a, on a fetal heartbeat bill, six weeks, or um, a 15-week national bill? What are you going to tell him? We've been very clear to him and all the others that 15 weeks is the bright line. You can go earlier if you want, but 15 weeks is the sweet spot. Hmm. Um, and the uh, and so that's uh, so from a, polling, Pence, from a very crass polling perspective, mm-hmm. what's the 15 versus six? What does that look like in terms of uh, uh, I mean, I know I could look this up myself, but like just for it's listeners. not as strong, but it's stronger than you think. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and well, we're talking 12, about like what twenty, thirty percent versus like twelve to fifteen weeks. Pretty consistently polls uh, around the sixty-five to seventy percent. Sometimes even higher, even among pro-choice people. When you get closer to heartbeat, um, it is 
lower, but yeah. it's not, it, it, you lose 10 percentage points, not 30. So, but I, but there is a lot of education that, it, you know, it's, as you well know, in politics, it's not just about the polls. Right. It's no, a, no, because of of, the poll right. has to stand the test of a debate, an election, uh, the rigorous uh, work that, um, that, an election takes to it. So yeah. if you get a poll like that, but there is no voice behind it, then it's a dead letter. It really is. So from your perspective, DeSantis is saddled with a political liability if he's the nominee. No, because the the heartbeat bill was what he did in his state. So if so you, you take the principle that you're as ambitious for life in the in the arena in which you govern, then it makes complete sense that he would be for a heartbeat bill in Florida that expressed the will of the people there. What is the will of the people in a legislature that includes California and Illinois and New York? It won't, at this point, it may not be heartbeat. I wish it were, but it probably isn't. So if you're running for 15 weeks nationwide to be elected to that, uh, to be the executive of this, le- of the congressional legislature, um, it's a, it's a different matter. So that's what he should be arguing. From your perspective, he should not be arguing, I'm going to take the Florida model and and nationalize it. Currently, he's not arguing anything. And he should be arguing something to contrast with the other side. It's the, it's the, he's he's just hiding from it. There is, there is no, he's doing something right, which all of them are, and trying to get the media and everyone focused on what their opponent's position is. And whenever any of the opponents, any of the Democratic Party, all of them are for the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a no-limits position. Whenever they're asked about their position, Democrats' position, about what, is there any gestational limit that they would uh, that they would support, they won't answer. It's because they are not allowed. They're not Planned Parenthood, and the party apparatus will not allow. This is post-Obama, post-Obamacare. This is the new rule. You cannot be for any gestational limits. And uh, I'm sure since you talk to Democratic strategists a lot um, that you've heard and maybe spoken even with Celinda Lake, whose advice is brilliant. Her advice to all the candidates in the midterms and moving forward is don't allow your opponent to talk about gestational limits. Make sure that you are calling your opponent's position a ban on abortion. No matter if it's 15 weeks, 12 weeks, uh, partial birth, call it a ban. Don't don't parse it in terms of weeks, right. uh, because then you're going to lose. So that they have been very disciplined. And that's in that. sort of like papers over the exceptions part as well. Right, that's right. And so they've all taken that advice. And in fact, so many Republicans have fanned the flames of that advice, meaning they've allowed themselves to be labeled being for a ban, and they're not for a ban. Therefore, of you know, 15 weeks is not a ban on abortion. It's a 15 week limit with exceptions. Do you think it's confusing for some of these pro-life Republicans who have deeply felt pro-life views and um, it's hard for them to make this sort of political turn of where the of where public opinion is right now? I actually don't think so. They'd rather. I don't think they're confused. (laughs) I I really don't. I actually I mean, with respect, I don't think that they are confused. Um, Most current members of the House and Senate have voted on a 20-week limit many, many times. The idea of voting for something that isn't the whole ball of wax has been uh, firmly established to be a thing, you know, (laughs) to be be something to to be for in contrast to something that the other side... It's not something they're going to be crucified for by the pro-life movement. Uh, Well, they haven't yet. Yeah. Um, but I can, but I think that, yes, I think you're probably right. And I don't blame some of them for having pause that this is not where they want to end up. Right. But if you are truly, um, a, a human rights advocate on this issue, you, you don't leave aside the whole issue because you can't get part of what you want. Every other issue that we, we debate, um, in Congress, is uh, falls to the same rules, immigration, uh, you know, social security reform, just about any kind of reform that you can think of that involves uh, that involves the rights of people right. is going to is going to be an incremental, especially now when we've just begun this. Is this one of the hardest parts of being an activist on this issue? Is is sort of making a decision like that? I think it is. Um, I think the more that we can um, honor where our strongest position is in the American public, 
um, the easier it is. And what, what I mean by that is at 15 weeks, a baby is you know, going to suck left or right hand based on whether right, left or right thumb based on whether it's a um, right-handed or left-handed. It's uh, got fully formed eyeballs. The, there's a fingerprint. Um, f- fingerprints are at 15 weeks. They feel pain. All moves away from the implement if something is inserted close to it. They move away from those objects. So it's a reasonable position. It's not the whole position, but it is very reasonable, and it's something that touches people, and they see who they're talking about. It, it seems like, and you can it, maybe tell me some of this history in your own world, in your own words, but the pro-life movement often had this sense inside the Republican Party of being taken for granted, mm-hmm. that the foot soldiers went out and knocked on doors and passed out literature and mm-hmm. donated money. Mm-hmm. But when it came to policy, the action wasn't wasn't always there. Mm-hmm. Bob Dole. Back of the bus. Back yeah. of the bus, yeah. So maybe with, with a little bit of that as background, you can explain how you approached the Trump phenomenon starting in 2015 and he came on the scene. So one thing that has been a guiding principle uh, for us always has been commitments to certain policy goals. It's far more important than the words because right. the back of the bus syndrome comes from we love you, we love you, we love you before the election and then maybe when you're moving into the reelect, you get acquainted again. Yeah, but we won't that, come speak at like you know on the, your rallies on the mall or or advance policy that is our highest priority. That's the thing that matters. And yes, you may come speak. I don't care if you speak at the at at our at our functions. What I really care about is whether you are advocating leading in the Oval Office or in the Senate in the House on um, on policy. Uh, on policy initiatives that you have committed to. So me, oh, I actually yeah. two minutes want to spend on yeah. some of the history of some of these politicians. Mm-hmm. Give me your sort of one or two word, you know, one sentence uh, view of them from your perspective. Like, let's go through some of the 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 big ones in your time in politics, um, starting in the '90s, like Bob Dole. <laughs> Bob Dole, invisible on the issue. Gingrich uh, really wanted the advantage but not really willing to do a lot of the work. George W. Bush? And his heart was completely there, but struggled because of staff and other reasons to really, I think, be a strong leader, but better than most. John McCain? Got there. And I think had a beautiful perspective and surround, yeah. and his daughter supported, helped with that. Uh, but nothing like his best friend, Lindsey Graham, who it's really in his, it's like caught him, caught his heart. Interesting about Graham. I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. think I'd do that. Sarah Palin? I think she's she was a true believer, um, I think, uh, and, and an incredible disappointment because she became very paranoid. It's the only way I can put it. I meaning we want, we want to do everything for her, everything for her. And then things went completely south, and she didn't trust anybody, and it hmm. didn't work out. Romney? Uh, really strong on words, and his peak was when he was running, and it just went down downhill from there. He was responsible, in my opinion, for helping bury the pro-life issue for a number of years. Interesting, Until really? we resurrected it after, like, around 2014. Yeah. Paul Ryan? Intellectual and compelling and um, and a true believer, not his most important issue. And, uh, and so, like, right. like all the rest uh, that you've mentioned, it took a little bit of like a spur. Yeah. I know he's got a lot of other problems. So, uh, but uh, Kevin McCarthy? You know, I think he's, um, he believes it. Uh, he named a 20-week bill. He took it on as his own. But I think he really messed up in the in the midterms by not taking a stand on something to counter the other side's uh, position on on abortion. Our candidates got shellacked, and there was no defense or offense on our side. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. 
Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What was the moment when you knew that you wanted to be a political activist um, on this issue? Some of it is interesting. Some of it is only interesting to me. <laughs> but I was very involved in high school. I mean, early on, none of my family was. I'm from eastern North Carolina. They always they all thought politics was just dirty and who should go there. Even then they thought that. Um, and you know what they must think now, right? And so in high school, I uh, there was an outlier Republican gubernatorial candidate. No Republicans won in North Carolina back then. And uh, I was a pro-choice Republican. He was a great moderate, Jim Martin. Uh, I just thought he was great. No one would help him in eastern North Carolina, so it was left to me, a senior in high school, to drive him around. And I really got to know him. Brilliant Davidson professor. I loved him. And he won. He was the dark horse. He won. And uh, and I was hooked. I was hooked in politics. But the evolution of my pro-life position obviously uh, had some work to do. First county you worked for was pro-choice. You want, yeah. the Abortion was not an issue really when you were in high school. Really wasn't so much. And, and 80, you didn't grow up in a house where it was a, a big issue. Not yeah. discussed. It was yeah. absolutely not discussed. It was very impolite to bring it up. Yeah. That's oh, kind of just yeah. not discussed. Yeah. My grandmother called it abortion. No one would ever discuss that. You know. It sounds almost like uh, the southern version of you know a, a northeastern wasp family. Family that doesn't mm-hmm. want you know, same same kind of thing same exact thing yeah. you know it's yeah. just it's what just who would want to talk about that <laughs> just uh, it's not done yeah it's not and it's not spoken of in yeah. uh, in polite society yeah and so of course I didn't or think about it I uh, went to Duke um, thought I was pregnant first time I thought about it planned made the appointment for my abortion. Definitely was not going to be robbed, in my perspective, then, of uh, of a Duke education, which I'd worked very hard for. And so was no question in my mind. Hmm. I didn't change that opinion very much. That ch- position didn't hold. I did. I was not pregnant, by the way. But well, I went prepared. through the whole process. You were prepared to get an abortion. Made the appointment. I knew. There was no thought in my mind about whether I would or whether I wouldn't. Hmm. Um, my body, my choice. No one should tell me what to do. Uh, no one can tell me this is a person more important than me. All of the things, you know, and um, my position changed, obviously, yeah. uh, dramatically um, over over uh, three or so years. When, you know, in college, you're supposed to get everything right. You yeah. got to get your worldview down. And it's very urgent that you do so. Yeah. And uh, there were friends. I was a I was pre-med. Went from pre-med to being a philosophy major in that period of time and just really dug down on the premises of my position on that and other things, and uh, and was really pressed by very smart, non-judgmental people who uh, just pressed me to explain. Then I worked in D.C., worked at the Heritage Foundation. You were an intern at Heritage, Intern right? there. Yeah. Finally, my uh, my position changed, and I fell hard like a convert falls. Is this story of uh-huh. uh, the group house story? <laughs> Yes, it's, <laughs> it's so funny you know that story. Um, I, you know, we yeah. do a little research on well, the show. Well, look at you. Of course you do. Of course you do. And thank you. Yeah. Is it, is it apocryphal yeah. or is that like a real thing no, that it's happened? A, oh, yeah. It's a real thing. All right. Explain to listeners because I think it's a yeah. powerful moment. Well, you, well, you details know, are kind of funny. Yeah. And you know how you are in college. Like everything is dramatic and you have to make everything <laughs> dramatic even if it's not. Yeah. And it's about your soul and your worldview at the moment. And I was living in an um, intern housing on O Street in Georgetown. What year is this, roughly? This was uh, 86, um, I think. Okay, so very common for interns, mm-hmm. whether summer or not, to yeah. be all together in, in a right. house. Whole group of us. Um, Her- all heritage folks? No. There were, there were interns all over D.C. No, I was the only heritage person. Um, though that's this, this split that I'm going to describe was reflected at Heritage also at that time. Um, but it was basically a libertarian versus traditional conservative split. It was like the Buckley versus the Goldwater. Goldwater wow, or, like living out in like a real world. In house. a real world, day to day, all these arguments happening. Yeah. And it culminated in this one evening. And I was kind of nowhere. 
I, I was. You weren't necessarily was, on the libertarian side mm, or the social conservative side. If anything, I entered libertarian. But as the summer wore on, which in my own mind is like three years, but was really only a few months, there was a, a big. Th- these arguments were every night, yeah. you know, and um, and it culminated in one night where some of the libertarian side crowd. And this is not an this is not an any aspersion on libertarians in general. It's just this particular moment. There was a pornographic movie perceived as pornographic that somebody was showing, and the traditional conservative slash Catholics in the group were like, "Absolutely inappropriate. Take that out." And I'm just watching. I honestly didn't care that much, to be honest. I'm like, I don't know. Like, we're grown ups. We can watch that thing. Yeah. And uh, in the end, uh, it, it erupted, and and there was a division of the whole house. And and they were ins- insistent that there be certain principles that the House lived by, whether it was going to be kind of the traditional model or the libertarian model. And then at the, by the end of the, the end of the summer, we had to choose which house we were going to live in. So basically, that this- led to this divide and this sort of <laughs> yes. like wow. Yeah, and um, and the social conservatives pretty much got booted. Like, okay, this is we got to live and let live, or you can't live here. So I had to decide, and it's not like that was the first moment that I ever thought of it, but all these thoughts. All this and abortion was very central to this as well. It was um, got it. Yes, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the riffraff kicked out. Yeah, to like yeah. The, you the, go the, live the, on the other side. Yeah, uh, out of Georgetown, and uh, but it was it was formative, and I think uh, you know, in some ways, I don't want to overstate the um, the microcosm that it is, but it is a microcosm, I think, of the split now, even in, in the Republican Party. By the end of that summer, this had become a more important issue to you. Very much more important. Yeah. And my mind changed so much that I went back and started a group on campus, a pro-life group on campus at, at Duke, Duke right. back at Duke. But as time went on, my conviction uh, grew deeper. And my first job on Capitol Hill was uh, working for a pro-life Democrat from West Virginia. Uh, and at that time, his name was Alan Mollahan. Mollahan, yeah, yeah. Still sure. is. Still is still, Alan still Mollahan. But he's not in Congress <laughs> he's anymore. He's not a congressman and We're going to get to why not. <laughs> True, true. Let's, don't, don't ruin the ending on no, that story. No, I won't. <laughs> and uh, I t- absolutely had, uh, I had so much respect for him. His, uh, he, he and his colleagues had a authentically traditional Democrat view of protecting the, the underserved, the little guy, you know, that you be the protector of the vulnerable always. And it was so consistent, their thinking, yeah. that I found that more compelling often than the Republican argument very often, which was a pure rights, constitutionally oriented. Of course, we believe that. But this one felt like it was the whole heart and mind. So, so I, a Catholic social teaching? Uh, yeah, more of a I would say. Is he, was he Catholic? Is he, Catholic? He, wasn't, he wasn't. He wasn't. Okay. But yeah. he did embrace that. Yeah. Um, and you uh, were not Catholic at that point? No. Okay. I was not. So there was a whole bunch of members. And you you may know, I'm sure, that at that time, most of the appropriation chairs when the Democrats were in control at that point were strongly pro-life and had been and were Democrats and it had been that way for, for a very long time. Yeah, it's not just that they were pro-life Democrats, but they were influential pro-life Democrats. Right. That's right. And so you worked mm-hmm. for one of them. And he was an appropriator as well. And, yeah. at the, so, and also at that point, I guess it's hard for people to realize this as you were a committed pro-life activist, but it was no, it wasn't unusual to go and work for a Democrat. It was or, unusual. It was okay. <laughs> yeah, it was unusual. Okay, so and I, was, yeah. yeah. So it was definitely a risk that I just thought, you know, uh, I had got advice from a colleague, well, colleague, like someone far senior to me, because I was just at an entry level place at Heritage at the point. And she said, do not take that job. You will never get hired by a Republican in this town again if you do. And she was right. I never did get hired by, but I never, I never wanted to be hired by a Republican again. You went <laughs> so, in a different direction. Went in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. Serving a cause that transcended both parties, which it does. Tell us about, um, I don't want to do too much of this history, but I think it's important to mm-hmm. sort of just give listeners a, some understanding of, of your background. Tell us about the founding of SBA. So out of that experience on Capitol Hill, it became very clear to me that two things were missing. One was a uh, the woman's voice in this on this issue from the pro-life perspective, the perspective that is reflected in the suffragists. The other was a strong muscle at the heart of the of the pro-life movement that was missing. Hmm. There was no because Emily's List has the political muscle in addition, and so many other Democratic machines uh, were were there to help pro-choice 
people run for office and win. But for us, there was really not a strong one. There really, really wasn't. Where the, the money and the machine in the best connotation that could elect pro-life people to public office so that eventually we could take back the Senate. Eventually we could take the presidency. Eventually we could nominate Supreme Court justices that eventually would hear a case that would test Roe v. Wade so that we could get to where we are. So, so the need was yes, women, and then overall strategy for the pro-life movement just came to us on the national level yeah. um, because we were the best thing going at that point. Uh, and so that's why we needed to fill that void as well. Um, so there's a sort of Shakespearean turn in your activism here as you uh, become involved with SBA. And your old boss suddenly um, finds himself on the wrong side of the abortion issue. Yes. Tell us that story. Yeah, well, he and I became very close. Alan Mollahan, he taught me um, to be very careful about the battles you take on because if you kill a bear, if you shoot a bear, you got to kill it. If you shoot a bear, if you, shoot a bear, you, you better kill it. kill it. That you was know? like his political advice. That, that was like, I would say in a nutshell, like he was a very wise and educated man. But that to me was, you know, did he, that did, led to me like, okay, we're going to be a velvet hammer. You know, we're going to be there. Uh, so, so his, so he it, was, well, tell us what that, what does that mean? It just means that you're like, uh, if you're going to be smart yeah. and you're going to go after defeating somebody in an election, you better win or they're going to come back and, it. uh, and it's not going to be happy for you. Got There's going to be no joy. And when they return to Congress and you are, you're in a difficult position. Now that happens Got all it. the time, of course, but meaning you are on the other side of a, of a, um, of a, an elected official that happens a lot yeah but if you're really going for it then make sure you win yeah because that win and taking those scalps for lack of a better we're doing all the wildlife themes right now <laughs> um is is how your is how you grow your your uh cause and your movement um yeah. and so uh and i i learned a lot from him and then uh obamacare comes along Bart Stupak, uh, who was from Michigan, still is from Michigan, uh, but no longer in Congress, uh, ha was was um, very clear, and so were the pro-life Democrats in general, including Allen, uh, that there had to be a statutory fix to Obamacare, or they couldn't vote for it. And this fix had to be basically the equivalent of the Hyde Amendment attached to Obamacare. This was for people who don't remember the mm -hmm. final sticking point. Yes. Well, it was always kind of another one and another one. But this was the big one at the end of Obamacare to really mm -hmm. get it across the finish line. Yes. Was figuring out the pro-life Democrats mm -hmm. getting their votes. Yeah. If, if that couldn't be fixed from Obama's point of view, there was no Obamacare. It yeah. just wasn't going to happen. They didn't have the votes for it. And so uh, all the Democrats were basically lined up uh, with Bart Stupak. Uh, we, uh, you know, we uh, were, I, I went to Bart Stupak and said, you know, anything you need for the rest of your career, no matter what you do, we will be there for you. We will be arm in arm, linking uh, uh, our causes together, and we'll be there for you forever. Uh, and then what happened was uh, Obama himself made this, of course, his number one priority. He lined them all up, lined all those pro-life Democrats up. They literally were sitting on a bench in the White House, like, and he's making them all raise their hand about who would be with him, meaning you got to get rid of that, that Stupak amendment or the rest of the Democrats aren't going to go for this bill. And so you guys have got to take this idea of an executive order uh, that, of course, would expire, that, of course, we all believed, including Stupak, that it would it was not so fixed. So no Stupak amendment which have, mm -hmm. would have legislatively fixed this, and in return, Obama promises an executive order, right. which, of course, can be rescinded. Right. And and they had all made the argument before, that isn't going to stick. Driehaus, many of these Democrats said uh, the uh, that that won't work. Like, won't be the statutory fix is the only thing that we trust. But that was the final deal mm -hmm. with Obama and the exactly. pro-life Democrats that unlocked their votes exactly and got Obamacare passed. Yes, from your movement's perspective, this was a huge sellout. It was a huge betrayal. With um, we considered and still do a decision only next to Roe v. Wade and its impact in terms of actual funding of abortions in, in the country because of the way it would be interpreted. 
And wow. Alan was one of those. No, that was that guys. significant a vote. It was that significant. Huh. So, uh, so and Alan was yeah. part of this, this this crew. Alan was part of the crew, and then many of our, so many of our friends, true allies, people I had worked with that I admire and respect so much, who had made the argument this was not sufficient. This this executive order was not sufficient. Stupak himself. Who had all who had made the argument that the said you need the amendment to yeah or or they all changed their mind yeah. uh, they all except for Dan Lipinski from Illinois the only one basically from at least from a difficult place uh, uh, he was the only one that really didn't did, uh, stuck to what he had said before Alan was in that group there were several Driehaus Dahlkemper all these names that are so nobody remembers anymore yeah, but 10, 15 years ago yeah, yeah but we're very very much in our our friendship group and in our sites and when they obviously including Stupak, and when they voted the other way obamacare passed and we had at that point it was the most important decision that we have made in an organization probably in our lifetime which was you we must defeat these guys and this one woman, He's, we have who, to defeat them, including so relative, my mentor. Relatively consistent pro-life Democrats. Yeah, very who, consistent. Very consistent across the board. Across like the you board, got, consistent. you guys had scorecards on them. Oh yeah, they were great. Guys, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you all had store scorecards on them, and they were, you know, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, they were all. They were all great. They were our friends. They were allies. I mean, think about it. We it we had a tight caucus at that point, but not anymore. And then, and then. You took you took you took out your old mentor. So my mentor and and many of the rest of and uh, incredibly painful. I know it was a hard vote for him, but it was the wrong vote. And if you shoot a bear, you have to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where we ended up. We did defeat um, not alone with the help of others, but how much did you spend in his race? Probably at that time, what was significant would have been probably, you know, $250,000 in West Virginia kind of goes a long way. We did a, a really lethal ad against him what was that uh, about his own decision making and uh, betraying uh, the pro-life cause. And it worked. Now, it worked along with the Tea Party that began then. So I'm, but this but the that was when the Tea Party was 10 or 12. It was 10. It was, the, it, was yeah. the 10, it was the midterm election. Obamacare had already passed. But Well, 2009 right. was when Obamacare passed, I the guess, house. and then in the House. Yeah. And, then and during- so the Tea Party movement was on the rise then, too. But the pro-life issue was, was if, they, if, if the Republicans had spent money, thought that it was important, really had done their work, and uh, probably Obamacare would not have passed. But they, as usual, left it to... You know the minions uh, like us, and uh, so in the end, we had to work to defeat these guys, and we did. And so, what did that do for SBA? Did it sort of? Um, I mean, I don't want to use like uh, you know too grisly a, an analogy mm-hmm. here, but in terms of your street cred, yeah, killing those bears, yeah. I, I imagine um, put some fear. In the hearts of some politicians. Well, it, that, we would have. Pref- I guess what I'm trying to get at is, just, yeah, that's, you, you tell me, like, how big a moment was that for? It was SBA? a huge moment. It was the most important moment in a couple of decades. Wow! Because it meant for the first time when I we we, had, we came up with the idea, we believed very strongly that there had to be a strong political muscle at the heart of the pro life movement. If you flex that muscle and you and uh, and you come up with nothing, then you're easy to ignore. Um, in this case, we were definitely not ignored. Uh, maybe we were before, but we weren't after that. Uh, and that's something you prefer not to do because the other thing that happened is something that you also don't want. You don't want a movement that is captured completely by one party. You need um, to form consensus with both. But that's the case now on both sides. Right? And that is that right. was the when parties are perfectly sorted on this issue. And that's that is the primary reason why the polarization began then with Obama. So that brings us to Trump and the guy who I'm sure you were the most skeptical of, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day delivered the most. I mean, arguably delivered the most consequential Supreme Court oh, opinion yeah. on this issue, right? Um, and he's back. So. Mm-hmm. Give us a brief summary of how you approached Trump when he first came on the scene and your role in guiding him towards some of his Supreme Court choices and his uh, commitments on, on abortion. Trump had no idea what to say. 
at all. Yeah. And not only that, um, did very badly in the beginning. And so in Iowa and South Carolina, uh, we were absolutely opposed to him. And our position was anybody but Trump in both of those initial primaries. Our job in primaries, especially presidential primaries, is to try to get every single candidate to a set of commitments. Um, and in every election, and the same is true in that, in that election. And so when it started to become clear that he was going to be the candidate, our job didn't change. Our job was to ask him to make those commitments. And, um, he had a strong understanding that the base had to be without the base. He there was sometimes no holds a grudge. Did he hold a Have grudge? You heard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But he didn't, I mean, you I got, think you got, we how'd pers- you get past that? How, how does one get past the grudge with Trump? You guys may know a secret that a lot of people try to figure out. No, maybe because I'm just so charming and easy to love. No, absolutely not the case. I think that, uh, I, I don't, I think that um, he is very smart. Um, and I think that he, he genuinely recoils at the position of the other side. Uh, he really does. Late-term abortion mm-hmm. is just gross to him. I mean, you've seen him speak of it. Interesting. And so, you really think that, huh? I really think that, like, yes, I think late-term abortion, he does fine. I mean, I've talked to him many times, and he just he can't even understand how anybody would could have that position. This, now, no, I'm, what I'm not going to say yeah. is that I, as I think that he's like a pro-life advocate extraordinaire, you know, with a, a but he has a story of his own. Like, he, he, uh, he, he tells a story of his own coming to this position, and I also know that he is very smart, and he knows that he, uh, uh, the best, most important thing he could do would make commitments and stand by them. And he, compared to all the people that you just mentioned, other presidential, every every other president or presidential candidate, no one came even close to the level of commitment and the follow through. Uh, um, what was the specific commitment that you extracted from him? Uh, well, there were four. Uh, one is advocating for the 20 week pain capable bill, a very modest, modest contrast to the other side. Um, the Hyde Amendment, making sure there was no standing by, uh, no funding for abortion and, uh, and bills, making executive so appointments. Basically, the Hyde Amendment is status quo. So just keep right. keeping like, the Hyde Amendment. Yeah, right. and extend it, do the best you can. So I'm building to the best part Uh, and uh, executive appointments that were pro-life where abortion was an issue, where it mattered. So like HHS? Exactly. uh, Attorney general like that. Uh, But the most important was pro-life judges. And not only and for the he was the first presidential candidate or candidate that I've ever come across that would say the words pro-life judges, because that's not a not an accepted vernacular, of course, in the judicial community. You're not supposed to have a position. You're just supposed to, of course. But He wouldn't use the euphemisms. Right. He was not. He was just, I'm going to say what it is. Right. No. He wouldn't say oh, strict constructionist or right. someone he, in the mold of, of, uh, of, of Scalia. <laughs> of, right. That's the vernacular. Yeah. But he knew that that was code, and he's not a person who speaks in code. Yeah. Uh, he knew what his own constitutional interpretation was so and it came down to that and you didn't see this is kind of a, mm-hmm. a naive question but you didn't see any downside in not speaking in the code in other words no from the, your perspective the code was kind of gave them too much wiggle room the code is great for inside the beltway yeah it is doesn't matter to voters in fact voters act need to know like they need the decoder ring for uh direct communication so we took those commitments directly to voters in battlegrounds we have the biggest and most effective um door-to-door operation hands down any organization including the party and when you can take that commitment to the door uh that's strong that's gold and so uh so we did that and so those commitments um were what sealed the deal and uh he is a deal maker and that deal turned out to be the best deal that we ever made uh, so, so my thought is so like no was, regrets, no regrets. If you line up every bad thing about Donald Trump, and I'm sure you have your own your own mm-hmm. list, doesn't even come close to those commitments on the other side of the ledger. For yeah, I, I can't account for all the other things. All I can account for is that he lived up to these commitments that now ended in uh, living in a country where now we the people get to decide where abortion law is. That the courts are not deciding that for us. The courts are not disallowing 
uh, laws that are that are the will of the people speaking through their elected representatives. They're, now, now we get to decide this deeply uh, contentious, but to us, primary moral issue of our day. So, when you're advising uh, a, a Republican candidate, and I, and I know that the state would matter, but just on the politics, what now is the sweet spot mm-hmm. for? Uh, a statewide legislation or national legislation. Let me just add something yeah. before I answer yeah. that, because um, I think this is probably the most important thing that I'll say this whole time. Yeah. And that is what governors did in the in that same 22 election and a couple of senators who did pick up the mantle, who did say Val Demings as Rubio did. Your position is out of step. People had called Rubio out in this environment because they thought abortion was going to be the silver bullet for him. Instead, he fought back. He contrasted. So he's an example of someone that he's like, an example. Abbott is, an, is a great example. In Texas. Um, Kemp is a great example. Uh, J.D. Vance is a great example. Um, there were and and you can see that the governors, there was not one governor that was called out, especially in terms of uh, predict, predicting they were going to be and defeated, that that was defeated. So what is that? They did what? Because they went on they, offense on the issue. They they were all in on on their uh, on the uh, law that they had been a part of passing and they defended it because they knew it they knew this inside and out dewine is another one um and they articulated it they defined their opponent's position in contrast to their own which was the will of the people of their state and they won so it's a model moving forward about what should happen in 24 there are many heroes like i'm i'm calling out basically the the heads of the republican party with Ronna Romney being an exception who did, I think, an excellent job of communicating. But um, in general, the the funding committees, the people who are actually doing the funding and recruiting and all of that, uh, the the advice of, um, of Congressman Emmer to all the candidates was pretend this issue is not is not here. Don't talk about it. Uh, talk about inflation. Talk about foreign policy and just hope for the best. Almost a year and a half later. On the Senate side, things are 180 degrees different. I don't know if you've seen the polling coming out of the Senate Leadership Fund that McConnell heads, uh, but it's all fantastic. And from our perspective, it's where you mean it on is this issue or on, on this, this issue. On the race? Okay. They've been they've done polling. Uh, they've briefed all their candidates, their incumbents. That two things must happen: that you you must describe your position, your your job as a senator, do not say that this is up just to the states. You describe what your position is and contrast a 15-week Republican position with unlimited abortion on the on your opponent's side, and it will win every single time if you find your voice. Now, what Youngkin is doing right so now— a 15-week mm-hmm. national ban. Yeah, national limit uh, because there's exceptions to it. So— it's a 15-week national federal minimum standard, so California has to go by it. If you go further than that, if you live in uh, North Carolina where there's a 12-week limit, obviously 12 weeks in North Carolina uh, rules the day. Yep. Um, but what Youngkin is doing right now, just I think it's still the it, – I hope I'm still answering the question. You are. Asked, you are. This is, what, yeah. um, is doing what we have hoped that every candidate would do, and that is to um, describe that position – Put your voice, the governor of the state, behind it in these yep. legislative races. Uh, put money into that communication. Now, it still doesn't mean that when you turn on the radio, pretty much the only thing you can hear is the uh, is uh, NARAL's ads. But but and his you, candidates, I think, are doing a very good job, and he is He's too. leaning into this issue. And he's he leaning has, into it. He has, a, 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 he has something to be for, 15-week. Mm-hmm. Can't beat something with nothing. 15-week limit. Limit, sorry. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not, not banned. Um, and- and um, so, are you, so SBA is going to spend some money in this race? I understand. Yep, we're spending so far uh, a million and a, a million and a half. Uh, we hope there's more coming, but at least that. Uh, and what we hope to do is uh, hold the house, maybe maybe take the Senate, but it, but. If we hold the House the, and the, even make gains in the we're House. We're just talking about Virginia I'm so here. sorry. Are we talking about Virginia? Yeah, I'm sorry. Let's just talk about Virginia for a second. Yeah. These legislative so just races in Virginia. Yeah. The other side thinks that abortion is the silver bullet like you described. It's the thing that's going to make all of their dreams come true. Take every legislature in the country, the presidency, the Senate, and the House. I think Virginia is a bellwether for whether that's true or not. 
And we don't have to prove disprove that by winning everything in the House and the Senate in Virginia. If we if we hold the House and maybe even take the Senate, it means that they have overreached, which they did in Youngkin's election um, before uh, just, you know, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So that same dynamic transposed to the Senate the House and the presidency that we're moving into and in the, through the, um, and now engaged in the primaries is the same dynamic um, that we that what we're advising our candidates to do. The hard work of persuading voters in battleground states is uh, it, after we have convinced or after we've already moved our base, our Democrats, independents and soft Republicans that may not vote or that are not really sure. And and those we call them persuadables, right? Um, when we communicate with them that uh, that uh, the position of the incumbent, say the governor or the opponent of our of our pro life candidates, the choice becomes very clear because it's such a popular position. The fifteen week position is against an unlimited position on the other side. So those Democrats, independents, and soft Republicans persuadables um, are vital. They're vital in ballot initiatives. They're vital. They will be vital in Virginia uh, coming up here soon, and in the Senate and House and presidential races. They they will decide these elections. Is there a candidate that you think would be the best vehicle for both the commitments that you want in a Republican nominee and this message in the current mm-hmm. Republican primary? Well, I've thought that several. Do a yeah. beautiful job, starting with Pence, Tim Scott. Um, I Tim don't know Scott if, took a little bit of uh, uh, yeah, I know <laughs> to, to get to the yeah, abortion. I know. You, he was the first one attention. that was tripped up on that. Remember? I know you've been paying attention. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people were you know we were, were finding our voices, right? <laughs> but his is found, and he is an incredible spokesman, um, and and clearly Pence is. Uh, you know, no matter what happens with their candidacies, they're going to remain incredible advocates and it's going to matter a lot. So I, th- I would say that uh, Pence is a model. Tim Scott is now a model. Uh, and we're trying to work our hardest to uh, get everybody to a level of commitment that we know we can bring back to them if they're in the Oval Office and hold them accountable. And, and we'll work with them. But you're not a, you're not a never Trump uh, organization or, or, or advocate in this in this primary, but neither are you a, uh, uh, you know, no, nobody but Trump. Our job is to get everybody to the commitments yeah. that we um, that just whoever becomes the nominee, we want them to be uh, rock solid, cemented in commitments that we can count on on the other side. Thank you for sharing your views on this and and taking me through all this history. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Well, and, I really um, appreciate your questions. They are thank you. They're clearly you've. You know a lot, and uh, I, I know from your record yourself that you've been, uh, from your career, you've been, you've seen a lot. So I'm really, I'm really grateful. Thanks for doing this. Good conversation. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.